All right, so welcome everybody to uh, this, uh, today's public le lecture. So we're delighted to have um, Alison Sch Schrager to um, uh, tell us about risk. <laughs> so um, Alison is this, um, she's both an economist and a journalist, uh, kind of rare and su very successful combination. She's an economist who knows how to uh, engage with the public and uh, kind of explain uh, complicated ideas in an intuitive in simple ways. She um, got her undergraduate degree in Edinburgh, in, uh, here in the UK, and her PhD in Columbia. And shortly after her PhD, she uh, got uh, very interested in, uh, kind of in the world of finance. She, um, and uh, she actually had worked with, uh, at the Dimensional Fund Advisors with uh, a number of uh, famous people and Nobel laureates, such as uh, Bob Merton and uh, Gene Fama. To, uh, on understanding um, kind of various issues pertaining to uh, uh, financial decisions and risks, she worked particularly on she thought particularly about retirement uh, decisions by, by, by people, and um, all this thinking kind of somehow got her very intrigued on how people um, um, consider risk, how do they manage risk, how do they measure risk, how do they deal with risk in their lives, and this is uh, the topic of her. Uh, uh, book, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel and Other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk. And so she will tell, tell us about all the thinking that she has done and the kind of the content of the, of the book. Her title is, um, the title of her talk is uh, Managing Risk in a More Uncertain World. So uh, we very much look forward to, to hear what she has to say. So in terms of logistics, we'll she will talk for about 30 minutes and uh, then we will have a Q&A. We, we can go until 8 and uh, we will kind of see how, how things go. So, um, okay, so let me not say anything more. Alison, please, the floor is yours. Okay, great. All right, so is this on? Can everyone hear me? Yep. Okay, great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be back in the UK. As mentioned, I, I studied, did my undergrad here, so it's wonderful to be back, uh, although I was in Scotland and this is London. Um, so normally, uh, my talk is all about how to manage risk and uncertainty to get more upsides from life and get less of the downsides. But that's, I feel like, a little awkward doing this in the UK right now because obviously you're all facing such a huge source of uncertainty. And I'm, I'm going to be honest, I, I have no idea how to profit off of Brexit uncertainty. But hopefully, maybe some of the stories I'm going to share and ways of thinking about risk will help you at least think about it and approach it in a way that gives you a little bit more peace of mind. So I'm going to start with telling you one of the stories about one of the more interesting people I met in the last couple of years. Um, his name is Sam Antar. And his story starts in the early 70s in Brooklyn, New York, when his family opened an electronics store called Crazy Eddie. And what they did is they, bought re they sold really cheap electronics, which was popular back then. Um, just to let you know in advance, everyone in, it's a family operation, and absolutely everyone in this family is named either Sam or Eddie. And um, in fact, it turned out to be very confusing when um, they got arrested that everyone had the same name. So Sam was Eddie's cousin, and he worked as a stock boy. And it turned out, from day one, this was meant to be a criminal operation. What they did is they sold electronics and they underreported their sales so they could evade taxes. And they did this for about seven or eight years, and they were doing pretty well. They made about $7 million doing this, which was, you know, a lot of money back then. It's a lot of money now, but even more then. But they felt like they, could, they were being, getting pretty good at this, so they thought that maybe they could go for more. So they sent young Sam who started as a teenager there, to college, with the sole intention of figuring out how to mastermind bigger frauds. So he, he describes that he was like, I was that nerdy kid always reading the financial papers instead of comic books. So they saw on him a prodigy, a crime prodigy. So they send him to college. He, figure, he comes back when he, after a couple of years, and he sits his family down. And he's like, I got a plan. We're going to take this criminal operation public. Like, yeah sell it on the stock market, a business that's already fraudulent. And you know, at this point I asked him, I'm like, did anyone say, gee, maybe this is a bad idea, this isn't going to end well, this is a criminal operation, we're going to be subject to a lot more scrutiny, um, we're not even going to own this company? And he was like, no, never occurred to us. So then they had this brilliant idea. 
that they would start reporting increasingly a higher percentage of their sales. So it looked like they were getting more and more profitable leading up to the IPO so they could get a better price. And that worked. They had a very successful IPO. They sold 95% of their shares over the years. And by the late 80s, they'd made about $60 million. But, you know, obviously, you, know, you kind of have a feeling this is not going to go well. So the electronics business got harder. There was a lot of family drama. But mainly, it was the late 80s, and hostile takeovers were very big, big M&A deals. So they got taken over. And the new owners came in and was like, this has been a fraud since day one. And then Eddie, crazy Eddie, went to prison. And Sam uh, turned on his family and uh, um, ended up cooperating with the SEC. I should also mention, you might probably haven't heard of Crazy Yeti, but if I was speaking to an audience anywhere near New York City, even though this was, what, 30, 40 years ago, everyone still remembers Crazy Eddie because they might have had the most memorable advertisements that people still talk about. You probably might have even seen them here because they featured this one man screaming and shouting really fast about electronics. It just typified New York. And these ads were everywhere. Enough so they were parodied on Saturday Night Live. And they were even in that movie Splash. I don't know if anyone ever saw it from the 80s, that Tom Hanks, Daryl Hannah movie where she was a mermaid. It was even in that. It's like everyone still remembers these ads. And again, this is just astounding to me. You have a criminal operation. You're going to sell shares of it on the stock market. And you're going to have the most memorable ads of the decade. This was like early viral. So again, I was like, Sam, what were you thinking? And he's just like, well, we were hiding in plain sight. I'm like, it doesn't work that way. So I feel like what can we learn about risk from this? A couple things. One, more risk, more reward. Instead of $7 million, they made $60 million. I mean, there was upside to taking this gamble. Two, like, people are really bad at assessing risk sometimes. I spoke to a lot of criminals when I was doing my research, and they all pretty much had the same story, whether it was white collar or drug dealing or counterfeiting. They, I all asked, they all said the same thing. I never thought I'd get caught. Or I thought I'd get caught in the beginning, and then I got away with it. So I figured I'd always get away with it. And they all have these like elaborate, very excited to tell me these elaborate risk hedging stories. Uh, Sam had them too. Oh, we had really, pr they always involved pretty women. They're always like, we had a pretty girl serving as a distraction. So we thought we would get away with this enormous fraud or drug deal. I'm like, it doesn't work that way. But again, so this is the other lesson we can learn from this, is the ways we're really bad at risk. Even if we're not you know, aspiring to, be, uh, to do securities fraud, Often, we really underestimate risks, or we overestimate risks in some cases. But that's why I want to tell you another story about another man I met named Phil Helmuth. So I'm not sure if anyone is one of these people, I know I'm not, who watches uh, poker games on television. They'll, like, you can watch an eight-hour poker tournament. Some people like this, and it's not judging, but, you know. It brings some people joy. So if you do watch this, you will have heard of Phil Helmuth, who's one of the best poker players of his generation. And he is also notorious, not only for, be, for winning, I think it was like 14 World Series of Poker bracelets, but for also being a complete um, lunatic. If he loses a game, he just loses it. He'll start screaming, he'll throw chairs. It doesn't matter that he's one of the best poker players of his generation and he happened to beat some amateur who got lucky. He'll scream at that person and say, you don't deserve to be here. Anyway, he just beat him. And you know, even when I spoke to him, he was quite volatile, he was very sharp with me. He is clearly not someone who seems like he's in control of his emotions. So all the more fascinating to me that he is also notorious for being what they call in poker, patient. He only plays 12% of his hands, when most poker players pay maybe 30%, because when he plays, he is so disciplined. And poker is usually one of the, another one of these behavioral anomalies. In addition to you know, underestimating risk, we tend to hate losing a lot more than we like winning. And that usually means that when we're down, we tend to be very aggressive, and when we're up, we're not aggressive enough. When really, if we were rational, 
we would be consistent in both cases. And if you're playing poker, it doesn't matter if you're winning or losing. You should play the same way because your odds, whether or, not, whether or not you're up or down, doesn't really have a huge impact on whether or not you're going to win this particular hand. And most poker players do do that. They are way too aggressive when they're down and they're way too cautious when they're up. The fill is consistent, 12% all the time. And so I look at him and I'm like, wow, if he can do it, really any of us should be able to. And I'd ask him a lot about it. And you know, it took years of him to develop this skill. And that's another big takeaway I've learned is that people who take risks regularly or take risks in one area of their life a lot tend to be very good at it. And he was very good at it. But he has all these tricks to keep him in the game. And that is mainly basic financial strategies that we see in finance. So he hedges and he insures. For instance, he never goes into a poker tournament with too much of his own money at stake. He always will um, find someone else to put up money for his buy-ins and then he just gives them a cut of the profit, sort of like a private equity deal almost. Or you see that when he is in the final game, he'll say to the other poker player he's playing against, he's like, let's go outside and they'll cut a deal. Like if it's a $2 million pot, they'll say, I take 500,000, you take 500,000, and then the winner gets the rest. So all these things, what they do, as I said, they're all sort of hedging or insurance strategies like we'd have in finance. And that means he doesn't have as much money to lose. And this is what helps keep him rational in getting too emotional. So I, I talked about, I opened with how you're all facing so much risk and uncertainty right now. And so you're probably like, well, you know, I'm not a professional gambler or a criminal. But, so what does this have to do with me? Um, but the fact is, we all face these sort of risks in our lives. I mean, think about it. It's not just financial theory pretty much is looking at prices, asset prices, and tries to back out how much of that is risk compensation and how much do risk drive prices. But really, risk drives prices way outside of finance. It, for example, when you buy a discount plane ticket, you know, the, the basic economy, the cheapest version, there's a reason why it's the cheapest version, other than the fact you have to sit in the back of the plane. You also might not realize this, but you're selling an option on your seat. So if the plane is full and they have to remove people from the plane, you're the first one if you have the cheapest ticket. Because what you've done is you've sold an option on your seat, and it's most likely to be in the money of all the other, of the sort of higher fare seats. And that's why you got the bigger discount, is you've sold a more valuable option. Or even a personal story, um, some example of how even I who study risk should know better. A local spa recently contacted me and said, hey, you know, discount package if you buy five treatments at once. And I was like, great, this is a huge discount. I was psyched. Went out and did it. Two months later, they're like, we're going bankrupt. We're not honoring your package. And I was like, wow, I took on, my, this, was, this was default risk I took on. That's why it was so cheap. Who knew? I'm like, I should have known. In fact, my mother's here. She was like, well, you should have known. You're a risk economist. <laughs> but luckily, I had bond insurance in the form of Amex. Could I put it on the Amex? And they actually got me my money back. So, you know, joke's on them. <laughs> but really, I got really interested in sharing risk and helping people understand it better. It wasn't just so we could be better consumers, but because I'm an economist who specializes in, when I'm not hanging out in brothels, specializes in retirement economics. As I said, I initially studied as a graduate student when I was a macroeconomist, and later I got into financial economics when I was at uh, Dimensional Fund Advisors and approached it from a financial perspective. And, you know, in retirement, we're so concerned about the fact that in the last couple, um, 20, 30, 40 years, depending on the country you're in, we took this huge risk problem and put it on everyone. It was a very hard risk problem. How do you make money last a lifetime? And it was really hard when companies had to do it with professional managers. And now, and they could also sort of diversify and hedge across generations. But now we've put this much even harder problem on individuals and not really given them any training of what risk is. Instead, we often look at someone like Sam and just say, well, people are bad at risk. People just can't understand it. But, you know, we don't really teach it or explain it. Even if you take basic finance, it's the, the tools are not really put in a bigger context of how to understand them. So when I uh, was leaving DFA and had a background as a journalist, I had this idea that, well, maybe people can understand risk. We just have to explain it better. Because what is a financial parable? 
yeah, oh, sorry, financial model. It's a parable, right? It's a stylized description of how the world works and how different relationships are, which you think that's what a biblical parable is. It's trying to teach you this basic lesson by giving you this simplified story of the world. So I had this idea, like, well, maybe I'll meet cool risk takers and I'll tell them in a sort of traditional parable structure to explain these basic financial concepts that I felt that people really needed to understand better. So that launched me on this journey. And it only became more important as I was on this journey because obviously the political situation changed and people became more distrustful of sort of basic, um, sort of mainstream economics. And you know that also struck a chord with me because this is economic historian, which I studied a lot of at being at a British university. There's a lot of evidence that times of economic uncertainty tend to also spawn more populism. Like for instance, in the Middle Ages, when you would have crops, uh, sort of variable agricultural cycles that had you know more variable crop cycles, what you ended up with was a lot more witch trials and persecution of Jews. You tend to have a lot more populism when you have a lot more economic uncertainty. And we have a lot of economic uncertainty right now, certainly with technology and globalization upending labor markets in ways that are unpredictable still. That might be a reason why we're having so much populism. So another reason I was thinking it's really important to sort of give people better risk education so they can make better sense of how to make sense of things. So that started me in my journey. And I sat down with Merton, and I was like, all right, you know, if you could have people understand anything about finance, what would it be? And we came out with all the sort of parables that I needed to tell. And the first one is the best and most effective risk management strategy that sounds so simple but is also so, so hard. And that is, first thing you need to do if you're ever taking a risk is have an objective in mind. Like, what are you taking a risk for? And it's really hard to know what it is you want or what you're looking for. Like a lot of you are students and maybe you're thinking, am I gonna do post-grad? You know, that's a big risk. It's time of the labor force, it's, it's fees. So you have to be really clear on, is this degree get me closer to what I want? Or am I just looking at education as this sort of way of prolonging being in the labor market? Or do you just assume any degree is a good degree? Which brings me to what you really need to know, how you can know if you are taking a good risk, if this is bringing you closer to what you want, which is the fundamental building blocks of all financial theory, as you can judge, which is the risk-free rate. We often don't give the risk-free, especially because you study bonds. The risk-free rate is sort of the, the sort of building block of all financial models, and it should be of any risk decision you make. So risk-free is what will get you to your goal with no risk. So effectively, no risk as possible brings you there. And it's not always intuitive because it depends on what your goal is. There's no universal risk-free asset. So if you're investing and you want to have you know, 100 pounds a year from now, it's pretty simple. Just put it in the bank or a government T-bill, and that 100 pounds will still be 100 pounds. But suppose that you have a different goal. Suppose it's... 10,000 pounds in 20 years, that T-bill is not going to be risk-free because it's not going to give you any protection for inflation. Or suppose that you're saving for retirement and you don't want a pile of money in 20 years. You want a stream of income in 20 years. That's also a different risk-free asset than a T-bill. Although often when you are investing for retirement, they'll tell you that a short-term government bond is risk-free. Although if you're investing for the long-term or investing for income, it's not. So it's the same thing in any risk decision you make. You have to, you can really clarify your goal and also help you make better decisions if you first define what risk-free means to you. So for example, suppose it's just a rainy night and you were invited to a party. So what's your goal here? Is it to have a pleasant evening? If so, risk-free would just stay in and watch Netflix. It's raining, it's not that nice. You know Netflix is gonna be good. <laughs> In fact, I, I have a personal theory that one of the reasons people become less social is it's just the risk-free, you know, risk-free is your barometer of how much risk you need to take. And compared to when I was younger, you know, when TV was bad, you know, the risk-free option was not compelling at all. So now the risk-free option is way better. So the bar to go out is so much higher. Um, so yeah, if you're uh, 
Uh, it's our pleasant evening. Yeah, stay and watch Netflix. That's risk-free. Now, of course, going to the party has more upside. It might be a really fun party. You might meet the love of your life. It might be amazing. But there's also a downside risk. You could get wet. You could get hit by a car. It could just be a bad party, and you've been thinking, I could have been watching Netflix. It would have been better. So you're you're risk-free in that point is Netflix. It might not be what you want, because you might want more upside, but that's how you can sort of calibrate your risk. And as I said, when TV was bad, you know, that party would seem a lot more compelling. Now, you might have a different objective, in which case it is, I want a date for next week. I want a date for this wedding I have. In which case, Netflix is not your risk-free option, because if you stay home and watch Netflix, you are definitely not going to meet a date for the wedding. Instead, you have to go to the party. So you can see how that's a good start to start thinking about risk and how to know how much you would need to take. The next big lesson is about is the behavioral stuff, the sort of behavioral biases we have that stand in the way of taking good risks. So this would be the example of Sam, who was really bad at assessing risk. The things he does are well-known biases, things like inferring serial correlation when there is none. Being good at tax evasion does not mean you're going to be good at securities fraud. Those two things, not correlated. But we tend to think that they are. Or overconfidence, or um, you know, the, the other ones that you, you think because you were good at one thing, uh, you were good at one thing, it's because you were good, not lucky. You know, all these biases played into why we're bad at assessing risk. But there's also evidence that gets a lot less attention that you can, be, you can learn how to be good at probabilities. And it, the way it is, again, storytelling. There, uh, the work of Gerd Gerenzer shows how people can actually make really smart risk decisions and even make good sense of probabilities. Like 50% versus 55% might mean nothing to you, but 50 out of 100 versus 55 out of 100 starts to become more meaningful. So you often want to translate um, probabilities into frequencies, or they should be given to you. An example that Gigarenzer often talks about is how several years ago, there was a new birth control pill that came out. And the headlines were, birth control pill doubles the risks of a blood clot. So not only did no one not want this pill, but a lot of people went off the pill altogether. But really, when you looked at it, it did double the probability. It went from 1 in 7,000 to 2 in 7,000. So obviously you want to think about frequencies because that will help you overcome a lot of your biases. Also, you can use Phil's techniques of calibrating your risk, taking just enough risk to begin with and being thoughtful in what you're taking risks for. That also will help you overcome things like loss aversion. The next one is efficiency. So the way we think about risk in economics is, you know, risk is the cost to getting more. You know, you take a risk, you have the potential for more. But there's no reason to overpay. Right? If you have two portfolios, they both have the same expected return, but one's riskier than the other, you would never take the riskier portfolio, because why ever pay for something? That's what we call inefficient. And so that would be the next big tip I have, which is when you take a risk, take just as much risk as you need. In economics and in finance, the way that you can make a portfolio efficient is through diversification. And that's probably true for all sorts of things in life, be it dating or job skills. You know, always look to diversify if that's, you know, you give up a little, maybe a little bit of sort of tail upside, but you also have, on average, will do a little bit better. The next thing is, is once you have that portfolio, that perfect efficient portfolio, is to manage risk. So risk is technically all the things that could happen, both good and bad, and how probable they are, or all the things you can imagine going into the plan. So what risk management does is that, so if this is a probability distribution of all the things that could happen, is it shrinks this distribution. And there's two ways you can do that. You can either hedge, which is giving up upside in exchange for reducing downside. And another is insurance, where you keep that upside, but you pay someone money and they take away the downside for you. So this might sound a little esoteric, but I actually found some really nice examples of this all over the place. But one of my favorites was when I got to go to the North Shore of Hawaii for a big wave surfing risk conference. So I was delighted to find out that they actually have a risk conference. And it was even more bizarre how much it was like a pension risk conference. We were in a windowless conference room looking at PowerPoint slides. And there were like these really impassioned debate about who bears the cost of systemic risk, which I'll get to in a bit. But really, when I was looking at how surfers manage their risk, it's the same thing we do in finance, believe it or not. So 
example, a hedge in surfing. So when you see, so these are the people who surf like these 80-foot waves. And when you see them on TV, they're always like, you know, the wave's there. I just got to surf it. It's perfect. <laughs> and I remember thinking when I was going to go with this, I'm like, I don't know if this is going to work, because that is not risk management. But when I got there, I found out it is not how it works at all. For instance, big waves, like large waves, travel in sets, say five big waves after one after another. And that first wave might be that big, perfect wave that they talk about on TV. But a surfer would never take that wave. Because if you wipe out, there's four big waves that are going to be barreling on you, and there's a pretty good chance you're going to drown. So what you're going to do is wait for the fourth or fifth wave. Because if you wipe out, you'll survive. It might not be as good a wave, but it's a lot safer. And that's actually what they do. They don't take that first wave. And that's what we call in finance hedging, right? You're giving up upside in exchange for reducing downside risk. Now, the other really interesting story I found, because I love insurance because, you know, I'm a Mertonian, and so I find any time you can put a price on insurance, I'm excited. Um, I met, I guess, uh, who would be Bob Merton's sort of spiritual brother, was a native Hawaiian man named Brian Kulana, who comes much like Merton from a long dynasty of great thinkers, in his case, a long dynasty of big wave surfers. And... He is known in the surfing community because he is a passionate risk scholar, self-taught, but he brought jet skis to big wave surfing. So a jet ski is effectively insurance. If you wipe out, there's this thing here to rescue you that will pull you out of the water and take you to shore. And Brian had this idea uh, years ago in the 90s when he was a lifeguard and a couple, and he lost someone, he wasn't able to rescue him because the water was too rough. And a couple days later, he was, he'd wiped out um, at some surfing competition, I think it was called the Eddy, which is big and big wave surfing. And again, rough water, he's a good swimmer, native Hawaiian, so he was able to rescue himself, but he was sitting in the water just feeling terrible that this other surfer had, this other surfer had died who he wasn't able to rescue. And just then, his friend, I'm not kidding, Squiddy, came along on a stand-up jet ski. And Brian was like, huh, I can use technology to get to someone and rescue them. Squiddy was on a stand-up jet ski, so he couldn't rescue him at that point. But once he got home, he started looking at everything he could about jet skis and discovered that the Yamaha Wave Runner, had, a, a sit-down ski, had just been invented. And so he went out, went into debt, bought one, and started rescuing people using them. And actually even initially got ticketed and arrested for doing this because they were only supposed to use for recreational purposes. But just like we do with financial derivatives, he lobbied and had the regulations changed to make it legal to rescue people using jet skis. So again, this is like a financial derivative, right? It's just insurance that will protect you if you wipe out. Of course, when you think of financial derivatives, people don't think of insurance, they think of risk, because people can use them as leverage, right, to take more risk. Well, you can do the same thing with a jet ski when you're surfing. So the bigger the wave, the faster it travels. So for many years, big wave surfers were limited. They could only surf waves that were, say, 40, maybe 50 feet on a good day. But then, with the jet ski, they discovered, because they were there in the water there to rescue them, oh, this jet ski can push me on a bigger wave. So now when you see these pictures of people surfing 80-foot waves, they're pushed out on a jet ski. So it's either insurance or leverage. And this is obviously causing some problems in the big wave surf community, just like financial derivatives are in finance. Because now you have all these people surfing way bigger waves than they should be surfing, or they have the skill to surf. And this is causing, uh, it causes harm to other people. It diverts safety resources. The people rescuing them are now exposed to danger. So the big discussion happening at big wave surf risk conferences, or the same thing that happens at financial risk conferences, is when you have a technology that creates some sort of systemic risk, who bears that responsibility? And what are the right regulations so people internalize these costs? And I actually don't have any good answers because they're debating them as passionately as financial economists are and pension risk economists are. Surfers seem a little bit more reluctant to invite regulation to their lives. I mean, I, I'm there at this conference, the only non-surfer, and I'm like, have you thought about regulation? Maybe big wave surfing should be licensed. And everyone's like, no, of course not. This is our thing. But, you know, it seems like that would be a natural thing. That's what I think, but they all disagree. And so the very last one I, I'm going to talk about, the last idea, is uncertainty. So I've been talking about risk. 
So risk, as I said, is technically all the things that can happen. Good, bad, it's a probability distribution, but it's all the things you can imagine happening. And you're probably thinking, well, yeah, it's easy to plan for what you can imagine happening. But what about what I can't imagine happening with these so-called off-distribution risks? Like you have a plan and something completely different happens. That would probably be like a lot of the outcomes from Brexit. Like you can think through all these situations, but you probably just, whatever's probably going to happen is what you did not count on. And so for that story, that was the one story I knew from the get-go when I figured out all these risk topics I wanted to cover. I always knew what that story was going to be, and I always knew it would be the military because I can't think of any other organization that puts so much effort into planning and nothing ever goes according to plan. And they're obsessed with risk management. Uh, I actually got to spend a lot of time when I was doing my military risk chapter with H.R. McMaster, who in America is well known is for being Donald Trump's second national security advisor. And rumor has it he still calls him and tells him he misses him. Um, but before he was known as being part of the Trump administration, he was actually known as a great risk scholar because he was one of the most successful tank commanders in the first Gulf War because he, there was, we went into um, Iraq the first time to liberate Kuwait based on the last war, which was Vietnam. So everyone was like, this is gonna be tough. We're gonna, a lot of people are gonna die, but for whatever reason, we're gonna do this. And then they got in there and it was pretty easy. You know, the soldiers put down their weapons and they just rolled right over them. And also, they had new technology in the form of GPS. So all the satellite technology gave them this huge advantage over Saddam's army. And so they won quite easily. And um, HR was actually one of the um, commanders in one of the most biggest important tank battles of that first Gulf War. And the um, GPS technology gave them this huge advantage. And in this battle, he was told to go to 70 Easting. So it's a certain point. It's like, this is how far you're going to go. And he was like winning. So he's like, I'm just going to go. He went another three kilometers, which might not sound like a big deal to you or me, but like apparently in the army, this is a big deal defying orders and going three kilometers more. He, when I talk about this story and people in the military are there, they still get anxious about this. They're like, that's a big deal. You don't do that. He put people's lives in danger. So anyway, it was one of the most successful battles. The fact that he broke ranks and did this was a big deal. And after the war, the military, at least the US military, had this idea that like, wow, we've, he even says they use the a market analogy. We've priced other countries out of war because our technology is so good, we're so big and powerful, we got this. And HR took a different lesson, which was you can't predict war. And you need to have soldiers on the ground empowered to make decisions. You can't plan everything in advance. So the military is like, Armies like to plan things in advance because it's a lot cheaper. And you can use technology and you can just throw a couple guys in there and it's a pretty cheap way to fight a war and if you think you're gonna win, it's pretty good. But he was like the opposite. The reason we won those battles was because I knew to go three kilometers further. So while everyone, well, the military went off and got involved in something called the Revolution of Military Affairs, which was this idea that technology was gonna make the um, warfare cheaper and easier, he did a PhD on the Vietnam War all about how important it is to question authority. And then the second Iraq War came along and we, again, were like, this is gonna be cakewalk. And obviously it wasn't. And, he, and even in the beginning, he was writing these long memos, these tortured memos saying, this is not gonna go well. We don't know how this is gonna go. We don't really know how to predict an enemy. You've spent the last 10 years, you haven't trained your soldiers to be, to be flexible. And you know, he was right. And there's a, if you're interested in this, there's a lovely New Yorker article all about how he trained his soldiers to be flexible. So I asked him like, so where's the tension between planning and flexibility? Like, if, the, if you plan for every risk, but then something different happens, what do you do? And because how do you plan for the unplannable? And he says it all comes down to flexibility. It's having a plan, but not being so wedded to your plan that you can't abandon it when you need to. So it's ha having, choreographing a battle, but also training your soldiers to know when to abandon the plan, which is of course more expensive. So you might wonder how this relates to everyday life. Well, in finance, it's, it's why debt is so, um, dangerous. If you 
This is sort of, I guess, the story of every financial crisis, too. I was actually amazed when you read about the revolution of military affairs, how similar, the hubris that is so similar to economists back then, when we talk about the great moderation, that we will never have a bad financial crisis again. We will never have a bad recession again, because we've engineered all of this uncertainty. We know all the risks. So in finance, if you have a carrying a lot of debt, and you've managed all your risks, having all that debt isn't so you know, you'll be fine. But if something happens you don't expect, and you've lost all your money, you still have to make debt payments. So that's where you lose your flexibility. So that's how you sort of have to think about uncertainty, because you have a plan, but you always need to that little flexibility, which is annoying because it's expensive. Again, you make a lot more money if you can just lever up. You know, it's a lot cheaper to fight a war without training your soldiers and how to be uh, sort of in the moment knowing when to abandon plans. But that's what you have to do. As I said, as Eisenhower said, who has the planning is essential, but the plans are also useless. So I think we're at our time before we go to questions, but I hope you find it useful. Again, as I said, I, I don't know how to tell you how to manage the uncertainties that you're facing right now. But hopefully, I've given you a bit of a logical structure to at least sort of make sense of them or take the uncertainty as they go. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks very much, uh, Alison, for this uh, very interesting uh, presentation and uh, uh, for how to think about uh, risk and uh, how people go about it. So um, now we're going to move to um, questions. So um, let me, first of all, remind everybody that the event is being recorded. I should have done this at the beginning. I forgot. So second, um, you, um, when you ask a question, say your name. And uh, OK, keep it short. It's meant to be a question, not a speech. And um, we'll take them uh, in batches of three. But first of all, let me ask a question, too. Okay. Let, let me start with questions. So Alison, would you like to um, tell us a bit? So you told us kind of how people prescriptively, how people should uh, think about uncertainty to avoid mistakes. So, and you also told us kind of quite a, kind of a bit about uh, retar uh, retirement as being such an important decision for people. Yeah. So, what do you think are the most important mistakes that people make in on this decision? On retirement. On retirement, yes. I think the biggest one is misdefining uh, risk-free. Um, when we are investing for retirement, we define risk-free, as I said, as short-term bonds. Because it, what that means is if you're in a short-term bond, you know that your asset balance won't fall too much, which is what people are looking at. They're looking at their asset balance now that we've moved to define contribution plans. But really, in retirement, it's not as quite as bad here, because up until recently, people had to buy annuities. You're thinking about a stream of income that has to last 20, 25 years. Actually, you don't know how long it's going to last. And if that value of that stream of income moves with long-term rates. But, so if you're in something that's trying to keep your balance stable, what your goal is going like this, and your asset balance is going like this, and what you have is a short duration. And I think this is where people go wrong. They get so focused on the asset balance and not the income. One, when they actually retire, they don't know what to do with their money. And if they do buy an annuity, it's a big risk to sort of make this huge purchase that they haven't hedged. And also, a lot of people, at least in America, I'm not sure what's after pension freedom, how things are going here, people are afraid to spend their money because they've gotten so focused on the asset balance, the idea of spending it down becomes terrifying, and they have no idea how much they're supposed to spend. So I think the misdefining of risk-free is what sort of is setting a lot of people up for failure. Okay. Very good. So let, um, thanks a lot. So let, let's, let's um, take questions. So there are also these uh, uh, microphones kind of moving around. So uh, just raise your hand. And, uh, okay, so, okay, let me just take a few. So one in the back, in the very back there, two, and three. So we'll take those three for now. Uh, thank you for the talk. Uh, my name is Andrew Empson. Um, my question refers to your comment at the end, which I agree with about having people empowered throughout the organization to make decisions relevant to their area of control. Um, but my question is around the information flow required to make sure that they can take the right decisions and have the overall view of what's happening beyond their immediate uh, kind of context. Okay, thank you. So, second question, yeah, there. Do you um, see any relationship between um, 
Swarovski and um, Kahneman's ideas and the ideas you have. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, there was one last question. Yeah, here. So my question was, just to learn if you have any examples of where you have markets where actors are used to playing bets where they can control the market and how they adapt to it and they can't control. So I'm the chief economist at Spotify, and what I'm seeing with record labels is they used to be able to control the market, control the retail space, control the shot window, and now they've lost that control. So how do they place bets going forward? So I'd just be interested in examples where you've had to adapt to a different paradigm of risk than you were used to previously. So like structural change? Correct, yeah. Go for it. Okay. Um, I'll start with the first question. Um, I'm not sure if you're talking about the military or just in general. But um, as I mentioned, to actually, is it, it, it scares the military at least to empower people, especially as I said, it's bigger than them. Um, and it comes down to, again, good training, which is expensive. And you have to have people thoughtful. But there's also downsides to that, that you have people making these decisions and not seeing the larger picture. And that's why the planning is so important. That's why there's this important balance. You, you really need to have the plan, the bigger structural plan. But then you also have to have people know on the ground of when it's becoming too constrictive. And that's, I'm not saying it's an easy balance. It's actually, if it was, then you know, you'd have much more successful empires. Like when you, when you learn that this is a central tension in military planning, at least from HR's perspective, you start seeing that, you, you start rereading military history from, wow, this is the difference between France and Germany in World War II, because it's a really hard balance to get right. But the best way to get it right is to spend the resources to plan people properly, which no one ever wants to do. And so Kahneman and Tversky, um, I'm more of an efficient markets person, but I definitely think their insights are super useful. Like when I was talking about Phil Helmuth, um, loss aversion um, is you know, prospect theory, which they're so famous for. I think that the, the tension, I'm, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I find in finance between behavioralists and non-behavioralists isn't that people don't have these behaviors. They definitely do. It's how much do they show up in market prices. And I don't think there's any way to know. I think sometimes it does. I just read um, Bob Schiller's new book, Narrative Economics, about how people get really caught up in a narrative. You can have this sort of collective hysteria that something's true, and it really does have a big impact on prices. But the problem is, is I guess where I become an efficient markets person, is it's really hard to estimate it and figure, out, figure it out in a predictable way. And that's the other way people can disagree. But I don't think anyone can deny that they're absolutely right, that we have these ways of not understanding risk. But I also think Gergerenzer's work gets a lot less attention, which is all about how all these biases that even they talk about can be overcome. So, you know, they would argue, or he would argue that Risk is a, especially risk management and risk measurement, are relatively new inventions. But our minds sort of evolved to deal with risk in actually not a bad way, but in a very different environment. You know, probabilities are an invention of the Renaissance. So really in the grand scheme of humanity, relatively new. So it is not surprising that we don't make sense of probabilities very well. But that doesn't mean we can't learn. I think he really calls it risk literacy in the same way, you know, people aren't born knowing how to read, but maybe if we trained people on how to think about risk, a lot of the biases that Kahneman and Tversky talk about would see them less often. And then um, you reached out to me on LinkedIn, right? Yeah, thank you for coming. Um, structural change. I mean, that's the other big question in finance, as you know, as we were even talking about before. Um, and, and I think that's, a, for me, that's the big question with big data, honestly, is because risk measurement is based on data in the past. And you form your plan, or you sort of estimate risk based on past data. But what do you do when the data changes? So for that chapter, I looked at the movie industry because you know they're constantly getting seduced by people who come and they're like, I've got the data, I can project your risk. The movie industry goes undergoes structural change every two years. But just like music, it's really hard to predict how. Because, you know, you imagine streaming has completely changed the economics of movies. Then before that, it was the Chinese market. You think 10 years ago, DVD sales were like a big source of revenue. Now that's nothing. So it poses a big challenge. And why I sometimes think the era of big data is a little overrated, because what takes skill 
more and more is knowing what data is useful and what data, when data stops being useful. And I think the sort of winners of the new economy are going to be people who know what data to use and when a structural change occurred. Because, again, not easy. One, two, three. Okay. So there are a lot of uh, cases where the distribution of risk is not uh, Gaussian, but it's, uh, let's say, fatal, mm -hmm. and uh, that's where insurance uh, is uh, helpful. But uh, uh, you have uh, situations where, like, uh, where it's uninsurable, especially on a societal basis, mm -hmm. where a, a, a state cannot uh, insure, cannot find insurance. So I was wondering if, uh, if you know of. Uh, um, sort of new creative ways to for a state. Well, so one solution, of course, is the precautionary uh, um, principle. But is there are there sort of creative ways to in, ensure these uh, mm -hmm. uh, fat tail risks? Extreme, fat tail risks. Okay. Yeah. There and there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, sure. Go. Yeah, you can go. Yeah. Go just, yeah. Just, yeah. Hi. Good evening. Just, just uh, state your name only. The, 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 don't forget to say your name when you ask mm. a question. Uh, well, good evening. My name is Nick Turner, and good evening. Um, the question I have, not, not to be obsessed with financial markets, but you've mentioned it several times in your uh, wonderful presentation. Um, the fact that most decisions and most trades are now made by machines mm. and algorithms, as a risk specialist, does that make you feel more reassured? or nervous mm -hmm. today, and where does this go over the next five to ten years? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, my name is Xuan. I just want to say that I took a risk tonight to come to see you instead of staying at home and watching Netflix. <laughs> and I think you are worth it. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, my question is, people in this country really like brick and mortar. So instead of buying an annuity, they might buy a couple of flats as buy-to-let investment and use that as a pension. Mm -hmm. What do you think the risks are and how to manage them? Mm -hmm. Okay. So the insurance question. Um, Okay. Yes, sort of. I said this huge question. I mean, different ways you can do it. Obviously, you know, the government. I mean, I think that's one of the big questions. Roles of government is how to insure against big risks that are uninsurable. Um, I recently was lucky enough to sit down with uh, um, the head of Lloyd's because I'm always just fascinated with how they measure risk because they always measure these uninsurable things and like very fat-tailed risk, like climate risk. And I was like, how do you ensure this? How do you measure this? This unmeasurable and like enormous risks. And he's like, well, we take a guess and then we buy a lot of reinsurance. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem is, is, you know, and this is a huge question. I think people don't get enough attention. It's not even just fat tail risk, but sort of these very sort of uninsurable risks. And, you know, you have companies like Lloyd's are willing to take bets. But one thing that troubles me, and honestly, I don't have a good answer for is, Lloyd's traditionally was able to take these large sort of un previously uninsurable risks because they would um, they sort of have that system where it's a lot of little insurers all together, so you'd get all this diversification. But the problem is, is probably some of the risks you're thinking about, the fat tail risks, are more systematic in nature. So you know, if you have climate risk, then you have sort of bad risks happening everywhere, and diversification does nothing for you, and it takes everyone down at the same time. So that's what troubles me more is less fat tail risk and the, the worry that they may not be becoming more systematic in nature. Certainly we see that in finance too as the global economy becomes more interconnected, which in some ways you get diversification, which sort of spreads risk out around the world, but you also have more systematic risk because if every, one person goes down, everyone does. Um, next one, algos. Again, it's... It's hard to know. In some ways, I think they're a great blessing for markets and that all these behavioral things that people allegedly have are going to go away if you have an algo doing it, which is maybe one of the reasons why spreads are a lot lower. Of course, um, algorithms are built by people. And people, their original biases and their outlooks, one, again, data changes. Those algos don't work as well. 
Two, you have a bug in that. Like I remember it was at Knight Capital several years ago, had a bug in their algorithm, and they paid dearly for it. Someone at a financial exchange was telling me how many bugs they'd catch that could totally take down a market, and they do catch them. So you have the risk of bugs, although I do think the risk of bugs are largely borne by the owner of the code, because you notice that Mike, with Knight Capital, you had this huge market crash, but it, Marks got back on track within a couple hours, but Knight Capital never recovered. So I, I worry less about bugs and more about structural changes that people haven't accounted for. But I think, I think it's more of a tail risk as opposed to, I mean, this is the thing you always wonder about when you're in a, or a risk person, which is there's volatility risk, right? So you have a distribution and you have the risks that are typical everyday risks. Like I always liken it to driving to the airport, right? It might take between 25, 15 and 25 minutes typically. Um, so you plan around that. But every so often there'll be like a 300 car pile up and it'll take four hours. You don't go to the airport based on the four hour tail case, you go on the 15 to 25 minute case. And so when I think of algos, I think that 15 to 25 minutes has gotten a lot tighter, so that's nice, so everyday risks are there. But we still, because they're still not well understood, we don't know if there's more tail risks involved. I don't know if you have deep thoughts on them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and the next one is property. So I think certainly um, with a lot of Brexit risk, property becomes a very risky asset. The problem is with an annuity, you know, insurance companies are pretty well regulated and they're able to diversify risk across all different people. As opposed to if you have property and property values fall a lot, you don't have a lot of diversification there. So especially if you're facing a lot of systematic risk that, you know, Brexit being a lot of uncertain, posing a lot of uncertainty for property values, you know, you might have the whole market go down at once. It becomes much riskier than an annuity. I think our behavioral biases make us very suspicious of annuities. Like you're taking your life savings and giving it to an insurance company. And I think that makes people uncomfortable. Also, you know, you don't, you can, you own property. You feel like you can actually see that. But I think people have to understand that that can be a lot riskier stream of income. Okay, one, yeah, please. Let's, let me see, any, any more questions? Two? Okay, let's take those two questions for now. Hello, my name is Rola. I was wondering if you think all risk should be managed. Mm -hmm. I mean, risk is also opportunity. What risks shouldn't be managed? Okay. And um, one, yeah, one more in the back. Hi, my name's Rishi, and I'd just like to say uh, I found it really interesting uh, hearing about how you think we can prepare for unknown or unpredictable risks, but what happens if we misidentify risk? So if we think something is a risk when it isn't, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Do you think this is a big problem, and if so, how can we combat this? Mm -hmm. All right, so I think this is the difference between risk management and risk avoidance. So if you're managing a risk, you're still taking risk. You know, it's definitely not a guarantee. As I said, it's reducing some upside, say, and reducing downside, but there's still downside there. I think of risk management as calibrating your risk. Like, you're still taking risks because risks are upside. And I definitely think, you know, we always say risk is a negative thing. You know, it's risky, it shouldn't do it. You know, we don't think well of risk takers, we say they're reckless. But risk taking is really important. Like if you just invest in bonds, you're gonna have to save a lot more money for retirement. There's a lot of upside in risk and people need to take risks in life. I think of risk management as just still taking risk but not taking unnecessary risks. When you take a risk, doing as much as you can to avoid downside risk, but you're still taking it on. And I think this is what honestly goes wrong a lot in financial services, is they think of risk management and risk-free as being synonymous. Risk-free is risk avoidance, but you give up all your upside for that. Risk, I think people often think of when they've done risk management is that they've done that, when really they're still carrying a lot of risk. Sometimes a lot of, I think what people get wrong is they've gotten rid of volatility risk but taken on tail risk or vice versa. I see that a lot of bad annuity products in America that do that, which is they get rid of volatility and give you tail risk. So I think the key is getting that, is understanding when your risk management is just not taking unnecessary risks, but still going for it. Um, 
And the next one is um, risks you can't, I'm sorry, what was your question again? I wrote it down, but I can't read my handwriting. <laughs> uh, sorry, it was just uh, what happens if we misidentify a risk? Um, is this necessarily a big problem? And if so, how do we deal with it? Absolutely. It's a huge problem. I mean, this was mainly the military story, which is people would, you know, have gone into all these wars thinking these are the risks when it's actually a completely different enemy than you think, or you think you have the technology to reduce the risk, but they have the too. And certainly, we see this in finance, where you know, a whatever next recession happens, I guarantee whatever's going to cause it is something we have not thought about. And um, that is why you need that flexibility, because the uncertainty is what takes you down. It's never risk. It's never what you can imagine happening that you didn't plan adequately for. It's the thing that you don't. And that's why you always need to build in that little bit of flexibility. Because if you look at anything that goes horribly wrong, be it a war or a financial crisis, it's always those things. One, two, three. Yeah, yeah. Alison, thank you. I really, really enjoyed it as a, as a not an econo uh, economist. And um, it's totally outside my sphere. So I'm going to have to ask a question in a, almost like a parable way. Mm -hmm. Most of the people in my generation are, are now retiring. Mm -hmm. And most of us have been sort of lectured by parents about putting away pensions and making sure we're stable. And yet a huge majority of us have gone back to being born-again bikers. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like there's something that, that gets inside you that, that creates a risk, even though you've been risk-averse and you've, and you've outlined everything mm -hmm. in order to not put yourself in a difficult position. And then this kind of almost like personal insanity comes over one. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's do you think that's a, a, a demographic sort of thing, or a, or or a personality sort of thing, or or does that actually go across all economics? So almost, taking... that, almost that self-induced risk because you know you've in because you know you you've you've got a comfy bed. So taking more risk as you get to retirement. Yes, but almost, almost that kind of well, why shouldn't I? Because I've actually made sure that I'm so covered. Mm -hmm. I'll now go and do something that can actually undo absolutely every bit of it. Okay, got it. Yeah, there was someone, yeah, the lady there in the back. Hello, my name is Katharina Keppel, and I wanted to ask, is there really always a risk-free asset and a risk-free option? So talking about a date, to have a date next week, is there really always a way I get this risk-free? Mm -hmm. And if not, is sometimes the risk-free option maybe uh, a cost that I have to bear? Mm -hmm. And what do risk-averse people maybe do? Do they have to adjust their goals and what, or what do they have to do? Okay. And there was one, yeah, then. Next one, next one. Yeah, yeah, please, you, you, you. Thank you. That was extremely interesting. My name's Elizabeth, and I was wondering, um, in the discussions around retirement, and I just started having this conversation with myself, just turning 30, having this conversation with myself, about um, is there a discussion now happening amongst people that speak about retirement to, to do with climate change, and what kind of investments can we make to ensure that there is actually a world to retire in? <laughs> Okay, so the first question about um, people who are very sensible and then they reach retirement and just either because they've you know, got pent up risks, they feel safe that they're gonna take more risks. I think again, that's maybe human. Um, maybe as well as you're staring down mortality, you wanna take bigger risks. And if you're hedged and insured, I mean, that can be a sensible thing to do. I think it just depends on taking risks in a way that you're comfortable with. Um, I think as well, um, kind of tying into your question, I'm wondering as well if that's driven by the fact that risk-free has gotten so expensive. You know, like, you know, bond yields are so low that going with low risk or sort of an annuity has just gotten so prohibitively expensive. I think a lot of people have no choice but to take risks. Um, just because before, if you were getting a 7% bond yields, I mean, you, know, you didn't have to take risks. And this speaks to your question, which is sometimes the risk-free option is either unavailable or just too expensive. Um, certainly for your date, I mean, yes, yeah, you could stay in, but does that really get you to your goal? I mean, 
maybe it's going to be great. Um, but you know, there is no risk-free way to date. So it's just uh, some, a risk you have to bear. Um, although maybe you can diversify by making sure you're dating other people. <laughs> or ha have some insurance plan, like someone call you if the date's not going well so you can leave. I mean, that's not risk-free, but it's definitely risk management. <laughs> and then for climate change. Um, it's a tough one. I, I think, you know, the odds are good that the planet's going to be here and so will you. I mean, you know, there's a tail risk, no, but I think the odds are good. But if it's something that you're really concerned about, I mean, there's certainly a lot of great investment options now to invest your retirement assets in companies that share your values that, you know, aren't doing things that harm the environment. I mean, I think that's going to be a big thing going forward is more activist investors who really want to invest their monies with company that is consistent with their values, and that's definitely something you can do. So you had a question, and let me take maybe any... Okay. Here, okay. And, uh, okay, yes, please, so one the gentleman there, and... Uh, Good evening, my name is David. Um, speaking on your topic earlier, where you were a bit brief about Brexit, can you explain why members of the public voted for Brexit, knowing it provided great risk to the economy and personal finances? Mm -hmm. okay. Did you understand the question? I yeah, so why did people... Anyway, for everybody to okay, oh, so no let me, tell me if I'm wrong. But it's why did people vote for Brexit when they were so well informed that it posed great risks to yeah, the economy? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> Good uh, question. <laughs> and then, yeah. Hi, my name is uh, Zal, and I've worked my entire career in the public sector. And my observation of government is not very good at managing risk. Either um, they're very risk averse and risk falling behind or they take massive risks without doing a proper risk analysis. Mm -hmm. So it would be interesting to hear your comments and your observations on how the government on how governments, the public sector, manages risk. Okay. Just those two? Yeah, just take those two. Okay. So I think when it comes, I honestly don't know, but I, I said I'm sort of intrigued by Bob Schiller's new book about why a narrative could take hold, which is especially when the public starts believing something that's different than what they're told by experts. And it could be that there's a lot of that there, like distrust of these like, well, you know, the economy is going to go to hell if you do this and just not believing them, somehow believing that they can't trust the government. I'm told I wasn't here during the vote that there was a lot of misinformation, that in fact they would get all these wonderful things if they voted for Brexit. And so it's interesting about how, you know, again, I wonder if just because there was a lot of economic uncertainty to begin with, you know, Britain, like all countries are going through huge structural changes with labor markets and globalization, that people just generally felt nervous. And when people feel nervous, they tend to be less distrustful of experts and start forming their own narratives that they think are more true. And maybe it was like, well, we're not going to believe this guy because they have something to gain from it. In the meantime, I have something to gain from this. So um, it's not a very well understood theory yet. I mean, Bob Schiller's insisting that we need to put this into economic models. I think that's a little early. But um, I think it's certainly as we are moving into more economic uncertain times, we're definitely going to see more and more behavior like this. All right, and then, so the government. Well, they say, I mean, you work for the government, I, I never have, um, that people who work in, for government are innately more risk averse, right? Because you work for a startup, you know, you, you, you're not going to get a stable paycheck. So maybe there's some personality there. Maybe it's also um, not a lot of training. Or um, maybe as well when it's not anyone's, you, you know, I don't know how likely people are to get fired if they take a bad risk, but there could be all sorts of incentives. You probably honestly know better than I do. Do you feel, do you feel like you work with people who are risk averse just by temperament? Absolutely, but I'm essentially unfireable. Uh -huh. And I probably 
And that should theoretically make me more, um, you know, make me more, uh, like, more willing to take a risk because mm -hmm. I can't be fired even if the risk goes badly and the risks grow up. We should be experimenting a lot more using that job security to take more chances. So, like with government programs? That takes place, you're right. We end up being more risk averse. Mm -hmm. But then you say every so often, then take an insane unmanaged risk. Well, like the war in Iraq. Yeah. It was, it was, they were terrible at analyzing mm -hmm. the risk. It was massive risk within a very poor job mm -hmm. of risk analysis. Mm -hmm. But like on a completely different topic, like on technology, I know where I work, we're falling farther and farther behind, and we're becoming more and more reluctant to invest in technology mm -hmm. because the farther behind we come, the worse it gets, and the bigger the, the job looks to modernize. So, well, do you think people are nervous that they would actually be fired because their skills won't keep pace with it? If they bring in new technology, then all of a sudden they'll be redundant? I think that's part of it. I think your observation about training though is correct. Is that I know where mm -hmm. I work, at least, we don't invest nearly enough in training our mm -hmm. staff. Uh, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but that's a big part of the problem. So we don't even know how to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. We recognize that things aren't right, but we have no idea how to do it, so we hire consultants. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> okay. All right. I think that uh, we covered quite a bit of ground. So we're going to sign books after? <laughs> yes, of course. That's right. Mm -hmm. So, um, all right. So let's uh, let me remind everybody that um, Alison's uh, book is uh, outside. So it's uh, uh, if you um, would like to purchase a copy there, it's um, it's all being sold outside. And also, Alison will be here. She will be signing the book for those who would like to uh, to, to, do that, to do that. So um, thank, let's thank her very much for this very interesting uh, talk.